Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. I have a couple of news items I wanted to bounce off you guys that have um, some very direct connections to what we do, uh, and others more tenuous. First, this is the older bit of news. It's a story that ran on Saturday. I don't know if you guys got a chance to read the New York Times coverage of Tiffany Trump's wedding at Mar-a-Lago. Did you read this? I did read it. And more importantly, I wanted (laughs) to see the pictures, which is why I opened that article. Yeah, let's be real. I mean, you know, it's fine. Uh, I'm not doing this just to um, delight in weird Trump coverage. There were a couple of legal hooks that I thought I just wanted to note. First of all, uh, I did not know that Tiffany Trump recently graduated from Georgetown Law. That was news to me as well. I had That had flown under the radar a bit. Perhaps she's pursuing a legal career. You don't always have to become a lawyer when you get a law degree, right, Amber? <laughs> I would say the better path is to follow the things that you like the best in this world. There so you go. here I am, a podcaster. And then the, un- the only other reason I even brought this up was because this is otherwise, like if you didn't know that Trump was the president, this is basically just like a soft focus styles profile of a rich person who got married, which they run all the time. And no one really says a word about it. But I did like this one paragraph, which kind of connected it back to the reality of what goes on with this family. They're referring to Marla Maples here, who is Trump's second wife. Miss Maples, 59 of Miami, was married to Mr. Trump from 1993 to 1999. Miss Trump, the couple's only child, has managed to keep a lower public profile than Trump's other children have. She is the only adult child of Mr. Trump's not to be sued by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. And that is the only passing reference to like the Trump <laughs> yeah. family's legal woes. A little bit of a dig from the writer there that could have kept this all just like surface level. But I guess that's one way to delineate who is more in the public eye. Yeah. And it's newsworthy, obviously. I knew immediately that that was the paragraph you were about to read. I, yeah. Because well, it, 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 it's, it's, it's branded out. on my brain now. Yes. It's so funny. The other one, and just this just came across the wire today, I believe. A bunch of outlets were on it. Or actually, it was, it was yesterday, November 16th. But it's that we've talked in the past about U.S. News and World Report's law school rankings in yes. a variety of contexts. I think a year ago, there was that Temple University professor who got rung up on some kind of fraud charge for trying to inflate their stats and improve their ranking today. And the like legal academia has always kind of been like, eh, we don't really like, this is a little opaque and we don't really put a lot of stock in this. But now both Yale and Harvard's law schools announced that they are not participating in this anymore. They're not going to submit the data they have to submit to the U.S. News and World Report to be involved. Um, I think I also saw Berkeley Law is opting for the same thing. Both of them may, basically said they don't really agree with the criteria. They think it's it doesn't focus enough on the school's efforts to recruit poorer working class students and also provide financial aid based on need. And also that the list tends to overinflate the status of graduates like moving into big law and high paying positions right. rather than like being a public defender or being a plaintiff side lawyer whose earning potential is not the same as, uh, you know, corporate criminal defense, civil defense, whatever it is. So I thought that was interesting just because we've seen that there's been a lot of tension, but none of them ever really take action like this. I think it's really notable, too, that Harvard and Yale are the ones that have made this move. Yeah. Um, Yale is top of the heap almost every year. So they have every incentive just to be like, yeah, we're the best. We agree. Uh, Always the best. 
Yeah. So it is really notable that they are the ones saying like, no, this system is actually kind of bad. Yeah. There is a tremendous amount of other news to get to. This We're, we're, we're jam-packed uh, this week. Later in the show, uh, I was able to have a conversation. Chris Villani, Boston Courts reporter, is back. He was just with us a couple of weeks ago talking about courthouse arrests. But now we're back on the Varsity Blues beat, which we have covered wall-to-wall on Pro Se several times. And Chris is really the man that you want to read and listen to when it comes to that story. We're talking about two specific parents who were convicted for fraudulent circumstances surrounding their kids' admissions to college. And this has mostly been a slam dunk at every corner for the government. But Chris covered, uh, this case is now at the First Circuit, so the first sort of serious look on appeal. And it sounds like these convictions could be on some wobbly footing based on some somewhat obscure Supreme Court precedent. And Chris, as always, uh, is very capable uh, and uh, had a really interesting talk with him. So stick around for that. Yeah, I can't wait to hear uh, that whole conversation. As you said, we've covered Varsity Blues a lot. So the continued follow-up is really fascinating. I do want to send us a curve in a different direction for our first news story today. I want to get into some crypto talk. It's hard to avoid. (laughs) It is hard to avoid, especially this past week. We saw the collapse of FTX, which was previously one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges. So let's start by getting into some stuff about FTX. It was previously run by Sam Bankman-Fried. It's headquartered in the Bahamas. And up until this month, it was the second largest crypto exchange. Bankman-Fried made a real splash because he's very young. He's 30, I think. And he amassed a pretty sizable fortune in this crypto space. And then he started spending it. I mean, he's spending it on political contributions, on philanthropy. And so he became a pretty well-known figure. Palling around with Tom Brady, if I recall <laughs> correctly. Right. Well, he'll come up later. But, oh, uh, he will. Yeah. This story does include Tom Brady later, so stay tuned for that. A lot of strands to keep an old duder's head. Continue, Amber. <laughs> so FTX began its collapse over the past week after its financial entanglements with Alameda Research. Um, that's a crypto hedge fund that was also founded by Bankman-Fried. And those connections came to light, leading to the devaluing of FTT, that's the exchange's token. And FTX reportedly had been using customer funds to plug holes in Alameda's balance sheet. Some reports indicate as much as $1 billion in customer funds may now be missing. No small dollar figures we're talking about throughout this story. Customers began to make a run on the bank, although can you say run on the bank when it's crypto? We need a new term for that. But the idea is they all came calling to withdraw their holdings from the exchange in an overall amount of around $6 billion. When that many people want their money out all at once, that is a problem. So it all led to a pretty staggering collapse of the platform itself, which erased FTX's $32 billion of value. And it was almost saved by the other big crypto exchange, Binance. That was in talks to buy FTX, but at the last moment, they walked away from the deal. So now FTX has fallen into bankruptcy. Many people have compared this sort of dramatic collapse to the fall of Enron or the crash of Lehman Brothers. And Madoff, too. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a similar iteration to a Ponzi scheme. At least that's what's been alleged. And that's what will that seems to be the, the fact pattern. But it is. Yeah, you can see the similarities. Yeah, for sure. I mean, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of fallout. And that's really what I wanted to dig into with the two of you today. For one, Crypto and crypto exchanges haven't had a ton of regulation up until now. 
And the push has always been to regulate these platforms and currencies more stringently. This FTX implosion has just ramped up the scrutiny from both criminal and regulatory investigators. And it's also raised a lot of calls for more general oversight of the industry itself. So financial investigators in the Bahamas, where FTX is based, have said they are going to begin investigating the exchange to determine if there was any criminal conduct that led to this collapse. Here in America, the Justice Department, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Commodity Futures and Exchange Commission are all also investigating the platforms. That's a lot of government firepower looking into this. There is a ton to possibly look at here. FTX itself has said that it's investigating possible unauthorized transactions that could be connected to the theft of around $477 million. So no chump change there. There's also this relationship between FTX and Alameda Research, and that's another avenue that many of these regulators and investigators may be looking into pretty closely. Goodness. That is quite a bit. I'm glad you ran that down for us, though, because the, the headlines are just, you know, they're flying about with such speed. It's hard to keep track of the latest. But I mean, what is the deal here? We don't know yet, but was this just a really bad company? It's a fair question, Haley. Um, <laughs> so regarding just FTX, not sort of the broader landscape of crypto, yeah, there does seem to just be a lot that was handled poorly. The new CEO, a man named John R. Ray III, has stepped in to shepherd the company through this bankruptcy process. And it's something he also did after Enron collapsed. So he's seen some pretty messed up companies in his day. And in an early filing with the bankruptcy court, he said this. This is a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth it. Never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. From compromised systems integrity and faulty regulatory oversight abroad to the concentration of controls in the hands of a very small group of inexperienced, unsophisticated, and potentially compromised individuals, this situation is unsprecedented. Hmm. Whew. Says a lot when that Enron guy comes in and criticizes you. <laughs> it sure does. He's like, bro, this really messed up. Bro. I mean, these Enron guys are just, you know, your run-of-the-mill corporate criminal. This is, <laughs> yeah. this, you, you wanted to get caught here. What is going on? Right. Yes. So, like, <laughs> on the sort of micro level looking at FTX, it seems like there was... I won't say for sure, we still have to see it unfold, but potentially a good bit of malfeasance here and things that will be uncovered. But I think more broadly, the story is interesting because beyond just FTX, the White House and Congress have both raised alarms that everyday Americans are at risk unless crypto is basically better policed. So the White House said it's monitoring this bankruptcy and it's called for more regulation of cryptocurrency in general. Democrats on the Senate Banking Committee echoed the need for more robust oversight and consumer protections in the crypto space. We'll have to see if any of those levers of government can actually put something new into effect to regulate this area. But it's certainly being looked at much more closely after this dramatic turn of events this past week. As Haley already already signaled, the story is percolating in a lot of different ways. There's the bankruptcy process, which we mentioned only in passing there. That's a headache that FTX is going to be embroiled in for quite some time. But I would imagine there are some other lawsuits as well. There are probably more flowing in literally as we record. But can you just catch us up on some of the high points uh, in terms of what we know right now? You know, Alex, it always ends up in court. So FTX investors 
Um, I'm going to talk about one suit that was an early one. I think it's representative of what we might expect in other follow-on litigation. So FDX investors have launched a proposed class action in Florida against Bankman-Fried and a bunch of celebrity brand ambassadors that promoted the exchange. That includes some top-name talents, sports stars like Tom Brady, Shaq, David Ortiz, Steph Curry, and then some non-sports celebrities like Larry David and Kevin O'Leary. That's the guy that goes by Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. So people that are very prominent and well-known are included in the suit. The suit says company leaders and those that were paid to promote FTX lied to consumers as part of a fraudulent scheme designed to take advantage of unsophisticated investors. Here's a quote from the complaint. The deceptive FTX platform maintained by the FTX entities was truly a house of cards, a Ponzi scheme where the FTX entities shuffled consumer funds between their opaque affiliated entities using new investor funds obtained through investments in the YBAs and loans to pay interest to the old ones and to attempt to maintain the appearance of liquidity. So basically, the suit is claiming a whole bunch of violations like civil conspiracy, um, violating some Florida securities laws and deceptive and unfair trade practices laws there. The suit also asked the court to declare that FTX and their yield-bearing accounts were in fact securities that were required to be registered with the SEC and state regulatory agencies. And that point is up for debate, but it may get resolved in some of this litigation. Yeah, I'll be honest. When I shouted out Madoff before, I didn't know that they specifically called it a Ponzi scheme in the complaints. So, yeah, it was a good shout out, Alex, because uh, yeah, you I were mean, right on the money there. Once again, congrats to me. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, the um, uh, we're working on this on the sports desk, too, uh, just because a lot of the people named in this are athletes and other celebrities. There's a few recent examples of celebrity endorsers getting into trouble for promoting crypto under shady circumstances. It's not a one for one. I mean, this is a class action that like alleges this like huge organized conspiracy. Very recently, Kim Kardashian got fined by the SEC for not properly sort of disclosing her ties to this crypto she had been promoting. Floyd Mayweather also got in similar trouble here. So there's at least some precedent of spokespeople sort of being held on the hook when the bottom falls out of a business enterprise like this. One thing I did want to point out, and the the tale is still being told here very much, one curious uh, fact pattern to look after as this suit kind of works its way through the court is the case of Larry David. Larry David, the Seinfeld writer, star of Curb Your Enthusiasm, appeared in an FTX commercial. So he was paid by them to promote the product. However, in the commercial, he very famously in his like Larry David persona way, they actually say, hey, Larry, you want to get in on this crypto? And he actually said, no, I'm good. I don't really trust that. I think it's weird. So they were kind of like using him as the avatar of crypto skepticism and then right. saying, don't be like Larry. So it's sincere. Like, it's just kind of funny, but it is sincerely curious to see like how that, or I will be interested to see how that specific claim against him materializes where he like was paid by the company to promote the thing ostensibly, but didn't actually promote the thing in the context of his payment. It's like, he's like ironically veering away from it. It's interesting. I mean, again, just that is, fact pattern feels like it is an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I know. Yeah, like, it, that's it does. pretty funny. Yeah, there's a lot to watch. What's on everybody's radar sort of as the, the scandal unfolds here. Honestly, we're such early days now. It's basically all open questions, but I did just want to kind of like throw a couple of those out at the listeners and you guys as things that we will continue to watch for. So 
Will any of the lawsuits brought by investors actually get results? Will they be able to recoup any of the money? Because we're talking about big dollar figures here that are missing. So what does that mean? Are the investigations going to turn up wrongdoing that could lead to other civil or criminal lawsuits? That's an open question as well. Early days of those investigations. And then what about that additional oversight I talked about before for the crypto landscape in general? This dramatic collapse is kind of the type thing that we've seen in the past brings lawmakers together to better regulate things when they see something so big and impactful happen out there. So will this be a watershed moment that leads to greater crypto regulation? We're going to have to wait and see. And most importantly, will Larry David be held liable for... (laughs) For, for being his appearance. <laughs> Add it to the list. Will yeah. his sarcasm work for or against him? Question mark. <laughs> well, so we're going to stick with the uh, athletes portion of that story yeah. here, but shift over to labor. This story combines two of my favorite topics, labor and the NBA. One of my favorite topics, Haley. Oh, Only of one. Of course, yes. Only one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you've likely heard, Brooklyn Nets point guard Kyrie Irving was uh, recently suspended for promoting an anti-Semitic film on social media and then initially refusing to apologize. Not a good look. Well, now an independent labor activist has filed a charge with the National Labor Relations Board accusing the Nets of violating labor law. So it's kind of interesting because it's not Irving himself or even like the union. Or the union, yeah. That's what it's I say. some other group altogether. Yeah, I mean, not that I really want to belabor this too much, but I do think we probably need the context of like, what's this film that he had posted about? We do. So it's called Hebrew to Negroes, Wake Up Black America. And it promotes the idea that African Americans are the true descendants of the biblical Israelites. Perhaps most egregiously, it accuses today's Jewish population of being imposters. And this is all according to a summary of the film by the Anti-Defamation League. So Irving posted about this, this movie on social media, very quickly saw the backlash, um, and even the owner of the Nets called him out. And Irving then kind of doubled down and defended the posts And then did issue kind of a weak statement that he meant no harm to any one group, race, or religion of people. And he said he would donate $500,000 to the Anti-Defamation League. I'm going so far as to call that statement a little weak because he didn't disavow the film. Uh, He even deflected a question from reporters about whether he holds anti-Semitic beliefs. And that's when he got suspended. This all went down in late October and then earlier this month. So I want to drill down into where this NLRB charge is and what the argument is. This is just a group or a person that is white knighting for him or something, or they see nobility in his plight just from purely from a labor standpoint. What what do we need to know there? Yeah, the group is called the Labor Organizers, which uh, when you Google that, Very difficult to narrow down your results, let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. It was, so it's described by its executive director as a newly formed independent group that pursues labor justice. And the argument here is the group is saying the Nets violated federal labor law by suspending Irving for reasons that aren't 
you know, laid out in the NBA players collective bargaining agreement or uh, the uniform player contract. They say that's a problem because suspending him rather than releasing him under the contract waiver process meant that he was prevented from joining another team and, you know, getting playing time in and making money, et cetera. Here's what the labor organizer's executive director, Veronica Patton, had to say. They constructively fired him and disabled him from getting any other employment and any other kinds of recourse. So that is something that has to be addressed immediately. I think this one's so interesting because we have this juxtaposition of, you know, Kyrie Irving's post and his subsequent sort of weak apology and sort of doubling down leaves a very distasteful thing that we're talking about. But the notion that the NBA can ignore some of these provisions in a collective bargaining agreement or circumvent them in some way is sort of a separate question, right? So it is. It's, yeah. it's, I think we have to kind of keep intellectually separating out the distasteful stuff from the broader picture of like, what does this really mean for how labor relations work? Absolutely. And so for this NLRB charge, what will happen next is the board will investigate this and it will bring a suit against the Nets if it does determine that those claims have merit. And as far as Irving's suspension goes, ESPN is actually now reporting that he could be back on the court as soon as Sunday. Um, He has since apologized. He's also been meeting with the Nets owner as well as uh, the NBA commissioner. Both of them have publicly said they don't think he's actually anti-Semitic. You know, take that as uh, you wish. (laughs) This, This whole thing, goodness. But he has missed... Tonight, he'll be missing his eighth game. So... He could be back Sunday, and we will wait to see what the NLRB has to say. The long and winding Varsity Blues college admissions fraud saga has taken yet another wild turn as the First Circuit appears ready to walk back the convictions of two parents implicated in the scandal. The panel's decision may hang on a somewhat obscure 1946 Supreme Court decision that could wipe out the government's aggressive charging strategy in its dragnet. Here to break down the latest developments in this case, uh, a man I consider to be the czar of Law 360's Varsity Blues coverage. It's once again, Boston Courts reporter Chris Villani. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Uh, thanks very much. I, I, when I hear Czar, I just think of Nicholas II, and it didn't end well for him. So I'm maybe a little uncomfortable with that title, but I, I okay. guess I'll take it. Thank you. <laughs> the maestro? I don't know. We can, we can, we can workshop that. Yeah, okay. Um, so as I told you, even before we hopped on the mic here, we have talked about this case ad nauseum. You've written about it a bunch. Uh, we don't need to revisit the entire history of Varsity Blues. I think if you are even you know, casually a follower of legal news, you know what's going on with the scandal uh, at large. But we are talking today about the conviction of two parents specifically here and their efforts to try and overturn those convictions. What do we need to know about these two guys? Sure. Right. If you haven't been following this, you're definitely listening to the wrong podcast right now. (laughs) So these are two of the 57 people that were charged. Uh, Yes, I can name all 57 and no, I won't. Uh, But John Wilson (laughs) and Gamal Abdelaziz. So 
Uh, the charges, the broad strokes charges are, are similar to many of the parents. They allegedly paid huge bribes to get their kids into college or agreed to pay big bribes to get their kids into college through William Rick Singer, who's the mastermind of the Varsity Blues scheme. In Wilson's case, he had a kid go to USC. He also was in a recorded phone call, according to the government, agreeing to pay a seven-figure sum to get his twins into Harvard and Stanford. And in the case of Abdelaziz, he had a daughter who went to USC purportedly as a basketball recruit. Their defense, which is similar, again, to some of the other parents we've seen, is essentially they always acted in good faith, paying donations, what they thought were legitimate donations, to give your kid a leg up in the recruiting or admissions process is not something that's illegal. And if there was any deception or fraud, Singer, an admitted crook, an admitted liar, is the one who perpetrated that fraud. So that's kind of the the background, the charging decisions. They were convicted uh, last year at trial. They appealed, went to the First Circuit. And as you mentioned, the oral arguments were held pretty recently. Yeah, and I wanted to start there because at every turn of this, from the moment they started charging people to people started pleading out, a few people fought it, they've mostly been unsuccessful. All that is to say, it seems like it's been a slam dunk for the government at every significant turn. But when you covered the First Circuit arguments in the case of these two guys, seems like we're starting to tell a little bit of a different story here. What do we need to know about what happened at the First Circuit last week? Sure. And those two things are related. Would you talk about it being a a slam dunk and all but one parent has either been convicted or pled guilty? Uh, One coach was convicted and then had his conviction overturned post-trial. But that is related to some of the issues the government ran into in the November 7th oral argument. So the 1946 case you referenced is the Kodiakus case. I think that's how it's pronounced. Kodiakus is presumably dead by now, so we can't ask. But (laughs) in that case, the upshot of the Supreme Court holding was that you can't charge people in a conspiracy whose actions are not related to one another, that don't know one another. And the classic example of this has been you have a drug dealer who sells to a hundred different customers. Well, those hundred different customers don't know one another. They know the drug dealer. So the drug dealer is the hub of the conspiracy. Each customer is the spoke. But in order to have a true conspiracy where they're all charged together, you need a rim. to Otherwise, you don't have a wheel. So if you can sort of picture that, that's the analogy that's used a lot. Singer is undoubtedly the hub of this conspiracy, and you have 57 different spokes that come off of Singer. But a lot of these people didn't know each other. And in fact, the parents argue not only do they not know each other, they were really competing with each other. Because if you want to get your kid into USC and I want to get my kid into USC and the team that Singer is working with, with a corrupt coach, only has X number of spots. And they argue they don't know what Singer was doing with the coaches. But one way or another, there's a finite number of spots. So in theory, we're in competition with each other. How can we be working with one another? Mm -hmm. And... The reason the government had a lot of success, one of the reasons the government had a lot of success in charging people, even those who maintained that they thought what they were doing was above board, is because by charging a single conspiracy, they were able to admit evidence of what other parents did, other parents who pled guilty, people who didn't know John Wilson or Gamal Abdelaziz, including Bruce Isaacson, who's the government's leadoff hitter at trial, testified for a day and a half. That evidence would not have been able to come in 
but for charging this in one big, single, sweeping conspiracy. And it leveraged a lot of guilty pleas, right? Yeah. Um, John Vandemore, the Stanford sailing coach, was the first, one of the first to plead guilty. He was told by his lawyers, like, look, you're going to go to trial with 10 other people, however many other people. And this jury is going to hear all of this different evidence of bad stuff that other people did wrong and they're charged along with you and it's going to cost you, I don't know how much, it was $25,000 just as retainer at Nixon Peabody. So it's going to cost you a ton of money. So, so he pled guilty. Uh, and, and that was a really strong leverage point for the government in order to get people to persuade people to plead guilty. Wilson and Abdelaziz fought it, went to trial, and now it's, things are looking pretty good, I would have to say. And I think most of the outside analysts that I've spoke to agree uh, at their chances at at least undercutting significant portions of the government's case. Well, let's talk a little bit more about how it manifested at the arguments themselves. You covered that for us. What did the panel that was, I mean, you, you kind of broke down the theory of why that might be a shaky strategy for the government. What did the judges who were hearing the case, like what kind of, you know, we're always reading tea leaves a little bit at the appellate <laughs> level and you got to- yep look in the negative space between the questions, but what what did it look like? Sure. So there was a lot of skepticism, to be sure. And on the Kodiakus issue, there were many questions about why the evidence of, for example, Bruce Isaacson testifying that he knew what he was doing wrong, all of this uh, evidence about other parents, why this would be admissible. And it was there's no question, it was a linchpin of the prosecution's mm-hmm. argument. These people, meaning pointing at Wilson and Abdelaziz, I'm giving my, my, my stirring rebuttal here. The, <laughs> these defendants knew what they were doing wrong, and you know it because you heard Bruce Isaacson say that it was wrong. Well, you can yeah. only say that because Bruce Isaacson was on the stand, and that was problematic, I think, for uh, some of the judges. Now, it, we should also know we're focusing on Kodiakos, and I think that's a huge issue here, but there were also other issues that the panel raised uh, one of them has been an ongoing issue of can, because the schools were were paid, right? I mean, the money is going to a coach of a lacrosse team or a water polo team or whatever. So if the money is funding a school program, how can USC be also the victim of a bribe, right? Like they got the money. How are they the victim of the bribe? There's no yeah. case in American jurisprudence where that has been the case. Just kind of shows how unique and unusual this situation is. So uh, the panel definitely had some questions about that. And there was no evidence at trial, no substantial evidence at trial about USC's admissions practices. The argument from the defense has been all along, USC effectively sells spots. All schools do. You build a building, the, the Lawson Center at MIT, and there's a pretty good chance that a couple generations of Lawson's gonna be going to MIT if they want to. I've been on the phone with them about that a lot. Uh, No, A lot of negotiations. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, That happens all the time. It's untoward. It's not elegant, but it happens. I think people understand that. So none of that evidence, though, was able to come in at trial because Judge Gorton didn't want this to devolve into a a sort of situation where you're putting USC on trial. Mm -hmm. That evidence, coincidentally, did come in in the case of Amin Khoury involving Georgetown University. He was acquitted. So these are some of the issues, and the issue about whether USC can be a victim of a bribe when it got the money, that was what led to the overturning 
of the conviction of the coach, uh, Jovan Vavik, who was the water polo coach at USC. So you can see there's sort of multiple different fronts here on which the defense was able to attack this conviction. And they definitely made a lot of headway because I think the, the three judges expressed a lot of doubt about all three of those issues, with Kodiakas probably being the, the biggest issue that was a bit of a head-scratcher for the panel. Yeah, I wanted to swing back to Kodiakas only because this did involve, like, you know, news would, and you said there's been, what, 57 people who were implicated in this? And it's like always similar circumstances, but not always the exact same thing and not a lot of connection between the defendants. Um, And as you also said already, you have been talking to some experts about sort of trying to tease out the implications of about like what that aggressive strategy for the government could mean if these don't stand up to scrutiny Mm -hmm. at the appellate level. What are they telling you? Well, there's the retrospective and then there's the prospective, right? So Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, there's some different circumstances and different levels of culpability. There were, I don't want to make it seem like the case was a dog here. I mean, there were certainly parents where, I mean, if you're Photoshopping your kid playing (laughs) water polo and he's never been in a pool before, and there was one in particular where they had to correct the Photoshop because they had the kid like flying 15 feet in the air. It's like, no one can jump that high. This is clearly like, you, you gotta, you gotta you know, calm it down I remember a that bit. one. Yeah. Yeah. Like LeBron in a pool. So there, there are different levels of culpability here. But if they do reverse on Kodiakus grounds and essentially find that this type of prosecution is impermissible, it could potentially lead some parents to look at this and say, well, I pled guilty to a crime that the First Circuit says doesn't exist. And maybe they think about petitioning the court to try to get that conviction wiped away. You obviously can't get your prison time back. Maybe if there's restitution or forfeiture or some sort of money uh, fine or something like that, that could be returned. But you're also not a convicted felon, right? I mean, yeah. I-, I have to think that means less for people that are in the tax bracket that some of these folks are in, but it still matters uh, being a convicted felon. So That's a possibility depending on circumstances. Going forward, it would certainly give the government less ability to use this type of charging decision to leverage pleas in cases where you have defendants who are involved with a criminal co-conspirator but don't know one another. So again, that hub and spoke. So you might be charging instead of 18 people in a conspiracy, 18 separate cases uh, and that could impact charging decisions because you're in, uh, undoubtedly going to have a stronger case against some than others. Maybe you only bring 10 of those cases instead of 18. Uh, so that's definitely something. For these two defendants, Abdelaziz is in a much stronger position. He only has conspiracy counts. So if mm. the conspiracy falls, he's in the clear. And yeah. also double jeopardy may attach. He, he's really in the clear. Wilson there's sort of what they call, the First Circuit refers to this as the mini conspiracy. So what did Wilson himself do with Singer? Mm -hmm. There are more substantive counts there that would have to get wiped away. There's also tax counts uh, that would have to get wiped away. So he has a little bit more of an uphill climb because there is, no matter what, there's a lot of deference to jury verdicts uh, at the appellate level. There's a reason why so few appeals are successful, though this one looks to be in better shape than most. But Wilson is probably not in as strong a position as Abdelaziz if we're looking at just these two particular defendants. Chris, I'm starting to think that you might still be covering this case when you drop your own kids off at college, but you uh, (laughs) are doing a great job for us. You are always, you know, I know you're knee deep in this stuff and we always appreciate you dropping by to catch us up. So uh, thanks for uh, joining the show again. 
Happy to be the maestro of coverage. I'll now head off to my my place in Tuscany, just like the maestro in Seinfeld. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank you. have time for this week, but I did want to give a little programming note for our listeners. We don't have an offbeat this week, but we will have plenty of them for you next week over the Thanksgiving week where we do um, an annual classic pro se tradition, which is the best of offbeat for the year. I'm excited for Haley to uh, to be involved <laughs> in that for the first time ever. This is a, as Amber said, it is a grand tradition. We have a lot of fun doing it. This is where I I go full Jerry Seinfeld mode, talking about the black box of airplanes. And oh say, boy. Why, don't they, why don't they make the whole show out of offbeat? Um, <laughs> and that's what we're going to do next week. So uh, stay tuned. That's right. Everybody join us again next week for that. It'll be a fun one. And thanks to Alex and Haley for being with me this week. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot, Amber. See you next week. I also want to thank our producers, Keller Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Chris Villani, and our contributing reporters, Tom Zanke, Vince Sullivan, and Braden Campbell. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review anywhere you listen to podcasts that helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.